This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Iowa 4th District Representative Steve King. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. More with Iowa 4th District Congressman Steve King next here on AgriPulse Open Mic. America's farmers and ranchers are relying on crop insurance now more than ever before to provide individualized protection and to secure operating loans. Protecting 256 million acres of farmland and 350 commodities across the U.S., crop insurance is the primary safety net for many farmers, enabling them to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. Crop insurance, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. This week, our guest is Iowa 4th District Representative Steve King. As Congress returns to Washington this week, King says there are multiple items on the congressional agenda, but none so important as a budget agreement for the new fiscal year. The number one issue in September will be uh, to figure out how to fund the government going beyond midnight September 30th. And that has turned into a kind of a tug of war over the years where, where government's being run by continuing resolution or CR in our particular acronym that we use, yeah, the continuing resolution. If we can get that negotiated and get it passed through the House and the Senate and to the President's desk, then we avoid that crisis that's coming. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I don't think that the House is going to do very much between now and the election. They're going to want to stay below the political radar, as I think the Senate wants to do, and probably save some of these things for the lame duck session after the election. Looking in your crystal ball with regard to this continuing resolution, legislation. Is it one that funds us through the election? Is it one that funds us into a lame duck session? Does it take us into 2015? Well, I think it just is most likely to take us into 2015. And I I say that because, you know, if we did a 60-day extension or a 90-day extension, I think that there will be political pushback. The public would be critical of that. Uh, If we extend the funding out into 2015 uh, and give the next Congress an opportunity, Opportunity then to weigh in. That looks to me like it's pretty close to the right thing to do. Now, under what we call regular order, we would be passing appropriation bills for each of the 12 and perhaps 13 appropriations uh, subcommittees that there are, and then that would go from the House, where the spending has to start, over to the Senate, where the Senate would weigh in, do their amendments, send it back to the House. We would go to conference and send a bill to the President's desk. That's regular order. None of that is happening, and it is, um, I'll say, it, it is brinksmanship on the fund. And it's hard to predict how it will be coming down to the end. But I, but I think that it's more likely that we do some type of continuing resolution that gets us to the next Congress rather than having to deal with it again in lame duck. You have new players and leadership. Do you expect that to change the process with regard to the majority leader? First up is spending. Well, I don't know that if the process is likely to be the same. It will probably change some of the decisions along the way. And we aren't going to be privy to what many of those decisions are. That will be staff working behind closed doors is how I would say it. It sounds a little cynical. Um, but, uh, you know, the change in there with Kevin McCarthy as majority leader and uh, Steve Scalise now as a majority whip, 
Uh, that changes things some. I will tell you that my working relationship with them has gotten better instead of worse, and I don't know that people would have predicted that. And I think we're going to be a conference that will work better together, at least between now and November. When we think about things that are on the table for this year, obviously there is concern about some of the tax breaks, some of the tax extenders that fell off the table at the end of 13, still not here. Uh, when we're talking at the Farm Progress Show, that Section 179 benefit might make it easier for some companies to sell farm machinery. That's probably the section of the federal code that is actually quotable, or at least the section number is memorized by probably a majority of the people walking around here at the Farm Progress Show, Section 179. Um, but where, what we're looking at is uh, roughly 30 tax extenders, and I do think they come up in lame duck, uh, not between now and the election, but after the election and before the end of the year, because they, they really have to be done by the end of the calendar year. Almost all of them fit in that category. Generally speaking, we are of the opinion, and I'm, I'm judging from the, without, a, without a vote or a, a, a whip card check on this, of the opinion that it's really all or none on the tax extenders to, to sort them and say these are in and these are out. Uh, when you get down into lame duck, that's not a very good thing to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predict that I think we get the tax extenders extended probably for a year only and do so in the lame duck session after the election. Process of the summer, finally the EPA suggestion with the RVO for renewable fuels has been offered for analysis of OMB. They have some time to digest that. What has the delay meant to your state? What has it meant to this industry? Well, I, I think that there's been a significant amount of uh, capital that hasn't been accrued because of this delay. And with when they, I mean, the EPA, I'll just say, arbitrarily rolled back the 14.4 billion gallon target that is in the statute for the renewable fuel standard, 14.4 billion gallons. And we're prepared to meet that. In fact, we'll produce that. But last year, we reached the 13.68 standard. And this year, it was 14.4. They ratcheted it down, though, to 13.01 billion gallons. And uh, now they, the comment period has come in and the EPA has received the comments and they're waiting to make a decision. But it, uh, and I hear through the grapevine that it's likely also to be after the election. Here's my message to the EPA. Go back and read the law. It says 14.4 billion gallons. Second thing is, there's a, there's a waiver provisions that I think were stretched considerably when the EPA rolled back to 13.01 billion gallons, and now we have the largest corn crop ever. It is still in the field. Granted, it's not in the bin, but it's already adjusted in the markets, and the markets have adjusted to the EPA's lower RFS number. If the EPA is going to look objectively at the law and look at the indicators in the field soon in the bin, they just about have to go back to 14.4 and say, well, you know, we've got a huge corn supply, and we need to put it into ethanol as the law requires. With regard to EPA, they also are considering a definition of waters of the U.S. that, according to a map that was released, would give them a tremendous additional uh, coverage of landmass in the U.S. and perhaps along with the Corps of Engineers. Was this in the Clean Water Act that Congress put together? Well, of course, I wasn't there then, and uh, I saw quite a lot of people in America weren't born then, but uh, in 19, about 1978, 
Congress passed, uh, let's see, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. And they have used those three bills to regulate away a lot of our property rights. The EPA contends that they've always had this authority to regulate the waters of the United States. I remember in an effort to regulate protected streams by, by defining these streams to their geographical boundaries. This is about 1992. And, quote, waters hydrologically connected to them, close quote. That was an overreach that reached all the way from the navigable waters of the United States, which you might think the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, the Ohio River, all the way up through the tributaries, up through the tile line, through the water line, through the well, all the way to the kitchen sink, all hydrologically connected. The courts found that that, that, that language, hydrologically connected, was too vague, and so when that was knocked down, now we see the EPA come back with their, their definition, which is these these the, the waters of the United States, not the navigable, but the waters of the United States, and where there is a significant nexus to the waters of the United States. They get to define significant nexus today, next month, next year, next generation, and we should not allow a rule to come in that's that vague, especially a rule that essentially says we're going to grant you permission to do normal farming practices along our waterways, uh, which includes dry waterways that we mow. Uh, we're going we're gonna to let you do normal practices as they define it, and when you start defining normal practices, they had some 50 in the rule, but there are a lot of other practices out there that are omitted. Then you have to get permission for them. This is an overreach. I believe that it, if you take this thing to its logical extension, it is an unconstitutional takings of our property rights, and it puts the EPA in a position to regulate every square inch if they decide to do that. The map, the map that you see now uh, isn't limited to that because, uh, well, uh, hydric soils go well beyond that, and and I and I, anything that's underwater ever is going to be within their control, so all of our river and stream bottoms would be. And I, I just think that we need to stop this rule. It's an overreach. It's an overzealous administration. We have one EPA administrator here on the grounds today. I wish that there were 1,000 of them and they could see what actually happens in agriculture, especially here in the heart of the heartland. Let's take another step with regard to this because the mechanism of government would have the Congress either to limit appropriations to affect a particular regulation or the Congress would come together and override with a majority vote and a presidential signature that their actions are out of line. I don't see that in Washington. Well, we have, Congress has a constitutional authority, of course. Uh, I call it the Bill Cosby rule. And I brought you into this world, I can take you out. And uh, the EPA was created by Congress. And I know somebody said earlier today that the EPA has claimed that they had always had this rule, always had this authority. I always had the authority, not necessarily the rule. And I would argue there wasn't always an EPA. I remember when there wasn't one. And But Congress has the authority to nullify any rule that we choose. We can just bring a bill to the floor, pass it to the House, the Senate, send it to the President for a signature. That's the constitutional function. But it's a different story when you've actually got to get something done and get it passed. Our best opportunity there is in an appropriations bill to bring a, bring a, a line item 
item in that appropriation bill that, that says no funds shall be used to implement the overreach of the EPA's rule, the significant nexus rule, I'll call it. That's our best chance to do that. The House is in a position to do that. The Senate's different because Harry Reid will block most everything we do in the House, but we do have an election coming up in November, and uh, I'm going to suggest that if that turns out well, we'll be in a position where Congress can nullify the rule and or cut the funding off to enforce it. There is discussion that this administration may be using executive order on some immigration policy. Your thoughts? Well, the president has been threatening his uh, cell phone and his ink pen for a long time on this, and it's gotten more and more intense. We, you know, we sit around and watch the White House and watch them release the trial balloons to see if they burst or get shot down. As they, as they this trial balloon has been released many times by the White House and the the, the president's spokesman, and it's this: the, pre- the president threatens to, by executive edict, not necessarily order, but but edict, legalize and put that word in quotes because he has no constitutional authority to do this, 5 million, 9 million, maybe up to 9 million people that are in the country illegally. You can just about take the number they give you and multiply it by three to get to a closer number. But the point is that if the president does this, then he has gone way outside the bounds of his constitutional authority. He has stepped in, and it's figuratively this way. Imagine taking the Constitution of the United States, separate out Article One, which gives the powers of let all legislative powers to the United States Congress, tearing out Article One of the Constitution, sticking in his shirt pocket and saying, that's mine. I'm now going to take over the job that Congress has to do. If that happens and Americans don't rise up, I will tell you, I will go directly back to Washington, D.C. I will call for a special session of Congress to deal with this. I'll call for my colleagues to join me, and I hope John Bader beats me to the punch on doing that. And, and we then have an open session, a committee of the whole, where we deal with this, uh, this, this expected massive overreach on the part of the President of the United States. The Constitution will never have been under such threat as it would be if he goes forward with the threats that he has made. Last thought for you. In Missouri, barely more than 2,000 votes offers a right to farm amendment to their Constitution. How do we address the divide between urban and rural? Wait, sometimes, you know, I'd like to think that we're there's a rational basis for the society that we live in and that we have reasonable people and they understand the underpinnings of why we live in this great country. And it is. Property rights, constitutional rights, the rule of law. And we need to respect everyone's rights. And when someone has a feeling and they start to turn it into emotionalism and then they act on referendum, uh, they, sometimes an uninformed electorate will impose upon people uh, something that's just it's, it's ridiculous and debilitating. I would, I would point to the uh, California egg referendum as an example when California, uh, the people in California were convinced that they should regulate the cage size for the laying hens in California. Okay, that's fine. If California wants to regulate their producers into bankruptcy, that's up to California. California to do that. They have a legal right. But then the California legislature was convinced that they should pass a law that regulates egg producers everywhere else. So that when an egg shows up in the border in California, it has to be, I'll just say figuratively speaking at least, certified to be laid by a hen that was in a cage size that the, that the, the Humane Society of the United States, the vegan lobby itself had prescribed.
prescribe. And we can't let that happen. We can't have a state regulate production standards in every other state. If that happens, we end up with a, a patchwork quilt, a hodgepodge of regulations. And these hodgepodge of regulations then tie up our economy in a place that our founding fathers knew this. They experienced it. That's why they wrote the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. And and when we get to court with that issue on eggs, and then thanks to the Attorney General in the state of Missouri, circling back to that geography again, for initiating the, the lawsuit that, that now I think will find California's regulation unconstitutional. If it doesn't, we'll get to the Supreme Court eventually and protect the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. Our thanks to Iowa 4th District Representative Republican Steve King, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.